Well, good morning. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to the book of Nahum. Our time together this morning will be greatly helped and much more enjoyable if you follow along with me in a copy of God's Word, the Bible. If you do not have a Bible with you, you can find one underneath the seat in front of you or near you. Nahum is one of the minor prophets, not because of importance, but because of its size, which makes it a little tricky for many of you this morning if you're not very familiar with Nahum. So it's on page 782 of the Bible underneath the seat in front of you. It's going to be between Micah and Habakkuk. If you're not very familiar with the Bible, large numbers are chapter numbers, small numbers are verse numbers. Nahum is one of these last several prophets, 12 to be exact, that are closing out the uh, Old Testament canon for us. I'm going to begin reading from Nahum chapter 1, verse 1 in just a few moments. Of what we call the 15 prophetic books, most of them begin explicitly by indicating that their message is a word from the Lord. Nahum, however, is a little different. And it's one of them that makes the same claim indirectly by referring to verse 1, the oracle that was actually given to him, and by speaking of the words that he saw. But Nahum is unique in that the entirety of his verse 1 vision is referred to as a book. His prophecy is not a revelation coming to an ecstatic mind, but an objective, rational piece of literature with a unified theme making use of elaborate poetic structures that actually comforts God's people by announcing destruction. It comforts God's people by announcing the destruction of Judah's most dread persecutor, Nineveh. The very city that we spent last summer learning about as we studied the book of Jonah. So now that you have your Bible in Nahum, I'm going to ask you to turn back just a few pages with me to Jonah chapter 3. And let's remember where we left off with this great city last summer. Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he said that he would do to them, and he did not do it. After perhaps the worst sermon in the Bible, yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown, from the most reluctant preacher in the Bible, Jonah the prophet, much to his chagrin, he witnessed what so many people have longed to see, an incredible revival 
when the people of Nineveh believed God. From the cattle stall to the throne room and absolutely everywhere in between, all living things, Jonah tells us, turned away from their evil ways and their violent deeds so that God relented of his disaster that he said he would do to them. It's an unbelievable response, one that we have prayed for here as a church, that there would be revival in our town. And it's an incredible mercy, almost too good to be true. God relents of the disaster that his enemies deserve because he is a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Jonah's mission to Nineveh was probably sometime in the first half of the 8th century in the 700s. But their repentance, as we'll see over the next three weeks, did not last beyond 745 B.C., when Nineveh became the leading military power in the Near East. From ancient times to modern times, power and strength and success have blinded people to their need of repentance and faith, of continual repentance and deeper faith. Nahum confronts us. Have power and strength and success blinded you to not only your need for repentance and faith, but deeper repentance and deeper faith and continual repentance and continual faith. And now, a little over a century later, after Jonah, the fruits of that repentance that Jonah saw throughout the, sweeping throughout the city are long gone when the prophet Nahum writes about 664 B.C. under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and speaks to us with the same authority as of Jesus Christ himself we're here speaking to us. We're going to begin reading in verse 1. And we're going to read the whole book of Nahum each week that we preach it. An oracle concerning Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger. His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from you. And will burst your bonds apart. 
The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut you off. The carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. The scatterer has come up against you. Man of the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are open. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off, her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt! Halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish in all loins, all faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lion and the lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey, the crack of the whips and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies and all for the countless whorings of the prostitute. Graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face, and will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle, and all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water all around her? Her rampart, a sea, and water, her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put in Libyans were her helpers, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken and will go into hiding. You will seek refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. 
Behold, your troops are woven into your midst and are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the seed. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There will fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of heaven. The locust spreads its wing and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locust. Settling on the fences in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your peoples are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us as we turn our attention to your word. I pray that you would help me and guard my mouth. God, we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of Scripture as it has been decisively revealed in your word. Help us to focus, Father, on what is not only an obscure book to many of us, but a difficult book for us to read. A book that is overwhelming as we focus on its pictures. Father, we pray as we consider this prophet that you would give us wisdom. Wisdom to live now as we look forward to the day the day that is coming, when you will not only make all things new, but you will judge all of your enemies and overthrow the wicked forever. Father, we pray between this day and that day, you would give us wisdom that we might live lives of holiness and walk in a manner worthy of the God whom we worship. And we ask all of this in the name of our God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. When George Whitfield arrived for the first time in Philadelphia in 1739, stories of a great revival occurring in Massachusetts were spreading across the colonies and across the ocean. Philadelphia was just ready to receive Whitfield in all of his preaching when he came. So in 1740, a preaching house was built for him downtown soon after he came to the city of Brotherly Love. The new building was the largest building in the city at the time, measuring 100 feet long and 70 feet wide. And became home, home to the throngs of people that were coming to hear the evangelist. We can almost imagine what it would have been like to hear Whitfield. Just like we can almost imagine the same type of thing as the people would have been thronging to hear the 7th century prophet Jonah when he came to the shores of Nineveh. People who would have wanted to hear the message that brought relief. They would have wanted to hear the message that gave them a repentance that spared them of disaster. But years later, in that same city, we have Nahum preaching to a people who have forgotten the news that they have heard. And the reality of divine vengeance provides comfort, but not for the people that he's preaching to. Three simple points will frame our time together this morning. Notice first, the judge. I want you to look with me again in verse 1 of chapter 1. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh, 
The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Anyone who has had the task of sharing the solemn message of God's judgment on the wicked will have no trouble agreeing with Nahum that his verse 1 oracle was a burden to bear. If you've ever shared the gospel of God's judgment with anyone, you know that it is a burden that we do not like to carry. It was a burden to bear, particularly when we consider that each of the three chapters of his prophecy are devoted to the certain, inevitable, and awesome destruction of a single city. Friends, it's almost incredible to us as we read this prophecy that God would devote an entire book of the Bible to the destruction of one town in the ancient world. And that is about the extent of what we know of the burdened prophet, Nahum. Other than his name means comfort, and that he was, verse 1, an Elkishite, coming from the town or region of Elkosh. Though we have no idea whether it was a town or a region, or where the town or the region was, though somewhere in Judah is likely, since the other 11 tribes in the northern kingdom of Israel were in exile at this time, probably precluding an Israelite site. The obscure prophet Nahum was God's messenger. God's messenger to announce the fall of Nineveh and the complete overthrow of Assyria at the very height of her power. And his obscurity, and the little that we know about him, actually underscores the point of his message and the preaching of this prophet. The hillbilly from Nowhereville announces the doom of the coastal elites in one of the greatest cities of the world at the time. I wonder if you have ever considered or realized that the Christian's heritage is actually with the hillbilly, not the city dweller in the Bible. God's people were remote, particularly uh, particular because they followed his law, but the world's people were cultured and eclectic because they had no law. Judah was inland and in the hills, though most people, just like today, lived along the coast for water, uh, along the water for trade and commerce. And for many years, all of God's people up in the hills would have witnessed this ever-expanding Assyrian city inch ever closer and closer to their territory as its might began to reach farther and farther as they began to gobble up some of their own towns. And they could not have looked stronger in Nahum's day. From Egypt to Elam, they dominated all of the nations of the world. And yet Nahum doesn't hesitate to declare their doom. Unbelievable for him to preach about it. As if he would walk into one of the big cities of America and say, it's all going away. You won't even be remembered. No one will ever know that you were here. It's hardly the politically correct thing to say. But this bold prophet built his case against Nineveh, not in the rage that he had that their city was bigger and they had opportunities that, he, they, uh, that his people didn't, but on the certainty 
of God's unchanging character and nature. Notice what he says in verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. In the ancient world, they didn't have punctuation. They couldn't underline or circle or use their highlighter. So he says three times, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. Vengeance, vengeance, vengeance. The covenant-making, covenant-keeping God is a jealous God. A God who is jealous or zealous that his honor be maintained. And not simply by his people, by friend and foe. Because this God allows no rivals. Because he has no rivals. And because of who this God is, Nineveh shall experience firsthand the fierceness of his vengeful wrath. Even though he had brought Assyria as his instrument to scourge the nation of Israel for her sin. The brutal oppressor Assyria had gone far beyond the limits of propriety and their cruelty. So now they will experience the full weight of God's retributive justice as he moves to assault them. Because as we read in chapter 2 verse 13, God is against them. Friends, if you learn nothing from Nahum, learn this. It teaches us that we do not want to be the people that God is against. We do not want to be the people that God is against. Not that we are simply against God, but God is against his enemies. And when God stands against his enemy, his wrath is fierce. He is jealous. He is full of wrath. And he is vengeful. Not quite the picture that we get later in the Bible. God of love and peace, is it? And yet Nahum doesn't want us to be consumed by that image. So he tells us that he simultaneously is long-suffering and just. Look what he says in verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. God will not condone sin. He didn't then. He doesn't now. He does not condone not being or doing what he requires in his law, the Bible. But he doesn't just fly off the handle. He isn't simply just venting his anger. He isn't just irritated and finally irritated enough that he responds at all the people that he's irritated by. His wrath is tempered by his long-suffering. He is patient. The very quality that God's enemies then and now have always assumed means leniency when he delays the administration of his justice. Friends, the patience of God is meant to lead you to repentance, not empower you to sin. But how quickly we transition from knowing what God says to thinking that probably God does not care very much to believing that God will do nothing because he hasn't done anything yet. The very thing that we wrestle with is the very thing that people in the ancient world wrestle with. He hasn't responded, so he must not care. He hasn't done anything, so he probably doesn't see. He hasn't judged like he said he would, so I bet he's not even there. The patience of God empowered Nineveh to sin, but it was meant to lead them to repentance and to drive them into deeper repentance and deeper faith. 
But Nahum tells us that though the Lord is patient and just, he will not clear the guilty. There will never be a person who is guilty who gets passed over by God, whether it's in this life or the next life. The point of no return has now been reached by Nineveh. And the only thing left for them is waiting for the judgment that is sure to come. A judgment that will be as terrible as the greatness of his power. Notice how Nahum describes it in verse 3. The Lord is great in power. And then look how he uses it in verse 4 and 5. His way is in the whirlwind and storm. And the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. God's great power is on display in creation for all the world to see. In the sea and in the mountains and the things that bloom and all created things. But as God created from chaos, so he can undo his creation and return it to chaos. When he rebukes the sea and makes it dry. Or causes fruitful places like Bashan and Carmel and Lebanon to wither. Or makes the foundation of the earth lurch in his presence as it melts into nothing. With vivid word pictures, Nahum helps us see the full force of God's righteous indignation. God does not trifle with sin. God does not play with sin. God does not forget sin forever. He helps us see that his righteous indignation is such that God consumes the wicked from the face of the earth. But the prophet doesn't stop with simply affirming these truths about God. He actually shows us God's presence in motion. The very thing that they thought, God is outside of time, God is not acting, God is not here. He helps us see God is in motion, God is in action, God is in time as he applies these realities of who God is to the everyday with imagery of the whirlwind and the storm and the cloud. As God descends from his lofty heights in heaven, the awesome stirrings of his presence occur between heaven and earth, but God, Nahum tells us, is ordering all of them for the destruction of his enemies, forcing the question in verse 6. Who can stand before his indignation? As we read over the next three weeks, just notice how many times Nahum uses rhetorical questions. Who can stand before his indignation? The obvious answer, no one. Who can endure the heat of his anger? No one. And why not? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. God does not merely chastise or slap the hand of the wicked. He breaks them to pieces and shatters them so that they can never be put back together again. The picture is overwhelming. His indignation and his anger are fierce like fire. And we are left wondering, can such a God be trusted? With all of this terrible power, where he can make and uncreate, where he can just destroy in the whirlwind, can this God be trusted? Perhaps some of you are here today and you're asking that very same question. 
can this God, the God of the Bible, be trusted? Nahum tells us yes. He can be trusted in all of his awesome power. Why? Verse 7. Because the Lord is good. The Lord is good. He is a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. The fierceness of his wrath is now juxtaposed with the tenderness with which he treats his own people. As we are told of the Lord's goodness. If anyone should have known the tender goodness of God, it was the Israelite people. They had had front row seats as God sent his plagues to Egypt with all kinds of insects and amphibians and diseases. As he turned the Nile River to blood, he covered Egypt with darkness, a darkness that could be felt, the Bible tells us, and even took away all of Egypt's firstborn sons. The God of Israel led his people out of Egypt, and he led them out personally with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He parted the Red Sea and he let his people pass through unharmed. And then when their enemies pursued them, he closed those waters on his enemies. But Israel forgot the goodness and the tender mercy of God. Seven weeks after their great deliverance, the newly freed slaves are preparing to be in God's presence at the foot of Mount Sinai. God instructed Moses to set limits around the mountain so that the people would not go up lest they die. He showed himself to his people descending on the mountain in fire, enveloping it in smoke. There was a thick cloud on the mountains as it shot forth lightning, peals of thunder, and a loud trumpet blast. But there, their belief in his goodness vanished. For the first time and not for the last time. Friends, God does not reveal himself in the same way to his people anymore. So we tend to imagine as we're reading the Bible and reading prophets like this and stories like that, that if God would do that for us today, then we would believe and trust him rightly. We might even think as we're reading through Nahum that it would be easier for the Israelites to trust the Lord because they had seen so much of his power and how he had wielded all of his might for their benefit as they witnessed death as a consequence for disobedience. But as we read through the Old Testament... We see the people of Israel continually forget the Deliverer, and they forget His goodness. So though they saw everything that He had done for them, they had to be reminded of His character over and over again, because they were missing it. And what did they not believe about God in all of those moments? The very thing Nahum speaks about here that C.S. Lewis famously tells us about in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when Mr. Beaver tells Susan that Aslan, the ruler of Narnia, is a great lion... A quote that we have heard many times. Susan is surprised since she assumed that Aslan was a man. And then she tells Mr. Beaver, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. She asks Mr. Beaver if Aslan is safe, to which Mr. Beaver replies, Safe? Who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king. The Israelites were intimately acquainted with the concept of God not being safe. But they often didn't believe that he was good. And here as God tells them about the judgment of their enemies, he reminds them of his goodness. You don't have to fear in that day because I am good. I will keep my promises. You do not have to worry in that day because I am good. I will bring to fulfillment everything that I said to you. You do not have to look out and be terrified because on that day you will be comforted when you see that I will destroy your enemies. The root of their unbelief and our unbelief is a lack of trust in God's goodness. And at bottom, for many of us today, that's what we're wrestling with. Is God good? 
Was he good to do it this way? Is he good to do it this way now? Will he good be good to bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus? Will he be good to comfort me on that day when he returns? Especially when the providences of life don't go the way that we expect or want them to. So they believed that their way was better than God's, that their own sense of goodness was better than God's goodness. The other nations surrounding Israel had crafted gods of their own who were not perceived as safe. They feared punishment from their gods. They made sacrifices and followed strict rules. But the God of Israel, the true God, was not looking for that type of worship. He wanted a worship born out of his character, knowledge of his goodness. He is fierce, but he is loving. He is jealous, but he is good. He will not clear the guilty, but he knows who his people are. God is big and scary and powerful, but unlike all of the other gods of the nations, this God is lowly and humble and compassionate and loving and forbearing and personal. The Israelites were meant to worship God differently than those people worshiped their gods because they believed that he was good. He is good. He is good. Friends, the Bible is constantly telling us that God is good. Everything that he made was good. God has been good towards his people. And God in his goodness sent forth his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life that we could not live. To die a substitutionary death that we deserve to die. To fulfill the law that we could not fulfill. To be good on our behalf because we could not be good or good enough. So that we, if we would turn from our sins and believe in this Christ, might know the goodness and mercy of this God Forever, and not just for 50 years. Friends, this good God has given us good news of great joy, and he has given us a good gospel of peace that we might be reconciled to God and know him and experience all the fullness of benefits of relationship with him, that we might be able to bask forever and rest in the goodness of this God. If we would recognize that he is good and that we are not, And then we come to him only in Christ. Believer, this good news is for you today. To be reminded of the good news, that you might press press ever deeper into it. But if you're here today, and you are not a believer, or might not consider yourself a believer, or think yourself to be a believer, but by the end of this sermon, will begin to realize perhaps for the first time that you're not who you think you are. This is also good news for you today. God confronts you with his wrath that you might know the joy of his goodness and mercy. And he tells you that it is very simple. If you recognize that wrath is coming and that he is good and has been good towards you in Christ, and you turn away from your sin and turn to him, you will not experience this wrath. You simply have to believe and trust in Jesus. Friend, we would love to open the Bible and tell you more about the goodness of this great God. Find me, find Pastor Will, find one of the members of this church following the service. I'll be standing at that tunnel. They'll be talking in here, sometimes for an hour. But they would love to speak with you following this service and tell you about the goodness of this God and open the Bible with you and share the good news of Jesus Christ. God, Nahum tells us, is good. He is jealous. He is fierce, but he is good. He is fierce, but he is safe and strong. And he knows those who take refuge in him. Believer, take comfort in the fact that God knows. God knows what is happening and God knows you. He knows all who take refuge in him. He knows you better than you know yourself. 
It is impossible for you to know yourself as well as God knows you. He knows those who take refuge in in Him, and He loves them anyways. As His people look out on the destruction of the wicked, they can rest assured that they are safe when the jealous God comes down to destroy His enemies because He is good. He is good. First point, we see here the judge. Notice second, the accused, and that is by large our longest point today. Look with me again in verse 8. Judge, now the accused. Verse 8. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Why do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time, for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. The target of the good God's terrors is, verse 8, God's enemies. We know who the judge is. He is jealous and good. And who is he directing all of this fierce wrath at? Verse 8, his enemies. Enemies who in an earlier day were described by the prophet Isaiah as a flood assaulting Israel. Don't turn there, but read it with me now and then just go back and read it later. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. Behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all of his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks and it will sweep onto into, uh, into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. There was a time when Assyria was God's instrument in his hand afflicting God's people. But now, Assyria will be the one who experiences submersion under the flood tide of invaders that will, verse 8, make a complete end of them. It will actually pursue them into darkness. Within 40 years of this prophecy, the devastation became Nineveh's literal experience when they were destroyed completely in 612 B.C. So completely, so utterly decimated that later travelers would pass through the area and wonder if anybody had ever settled there. And just as the city had disappeared, so all of its inhabitants, verse 8, had vanished into an oblivious, oppressive blackness as both the people and the sight experienced the horror of God's judgment. That was so utterly complete that the prophet says it twice. So complete that they would not, verse 9, cause further trouble because they would be no more. He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. Friends, there is no way around it. So he asks, why do you plot against the Lord? What can they do in the face of such power? The obvious answer again is nothing. The distress and terror and devastation are so overwhelming that it's actually hard for us to actually comprehend what is taking place with the finality of God's judgment in Nahum unless we are people who have been to war. God's wrath against their evils will consume them, verse 10, like stubble fully dried out, because, verse 11, they have schemed against him. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. They have not simply been passively rebellious, which is actually what many of us want, to be considered passively rebellious. The prophet tells us that they have been actively sinful. They have been pursuing evil. 
They have been doing wrong. They have been wicked people. They have been actively doing what God has told them that they should not do. And there will be no mercy. God has rendered his verdict on their evil and on them. God's judgment directed specifically against 7th century Assyria displays that the most powerful nation cannot succeed in its opposition against the purposes of the Lord. And neither can you or I. Friend, let me ask you, do you really think that you're getting away with it? Do you really think that the jealous God who judged Assyria for her sin and all of her might will somehow forget about you and your sin and doesn't care? Sins against your spouse. Sins against your kids. Sins against your neighbors. Sins against fellow members in this church. Sins against him personally. Sins that disenfranchise you from other people and alienate you from those you love. Sins that are actually ruining your life and the lives of the people around you. Do you really think that God does not see and God does not care? Sins that take advantage of others and abuse others. Sins that harm others and destroy the lives of others. Sins you speak about. Sins you think about. Sins that seem to go undealt with. Do you really think, because he has been patient so far, that he no longer cares and somehow you are unique in the history of the world and that you will be different than all of the other people that he's judged? Nahum, if it teaches us nothing, it teaches us that nobody is getting away with anything. Nahum teaches us that God is not mocked. In fact, God is the mocker who mocks those who mock him. The greatest mocker of them all is God who mocks the very people who stand against him, who rail against him, who hide their sin, who flaunt their sin, who boldly commit their sin. The jealous God who judged Assyria will judge all of his enemies and he mocks them for even trying. Who are you to plot against me? No one. The greatest power in the world cannot get away with it. Neither will we. And Nahum teaches us that just like Nineveh, we're not merely passively rebellious, not really culpable because we didn't really do it, but actively sinful, actively and aggressively pursuing our sin because we love our sin more than we love God. We are actively sinful, and we have merited God's wrath And friends, a day is coming for us just like it came for Nineveh when there will be no more time left. The sky will open and Christ will return and that will be the day that you and I and all people are held accountable. Who are you to plot against the Lord in preparation for that day? The judge, jealous and good. The accused, actively sinful, meriting God's wrath, pursued into darkness utterly destroyed and swept away. Notice third, the verdict. Look with me again in verse 12. Thus says the Lord. Now notice how many times Nahum has evoked the name of the Lord in the passage. The covenant-making, covenant-keeping God of the Bible. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. 
Though I have afflicted you, Israel, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break Assyria's yoke from off of you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods. I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news and publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Thus says the Lord, verse 12, for the first and only time in the book. As you go back and reread the book as we're studying it together, this is the only mention of thus says the Lord. The Lord, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God of the Bible, lays the strongest possible stress on the fact that despite all appearances to the contrary, in the midst of all of their strength, Assyria, God will see to it that they fall, and they will fall hard. Verse 12. Though they are at full strength. God would have it no other way, would he? He doesn't hit them when they're weak. He hits them when they're strongest. Right when they think, he can't touch me. And though they are many, innumerable, they will be cut down and pass away. Numbers won't save Assyria. They will be cut down like the grass that you cut this past week. And those who afflicted Judah will now be afflicted as God brings the afflictor of Judah to an absolute end. And when he does, her oppression will cease. Verse 12, though I have afflicted you, Judah, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break Assyria's yoke from off of you and will burst your bonds apart. Though they are many, they have taken advantage of you. They have taken your land away. They have kept you from fulfilling your vows. I will burst your bonds. You will know peace. God, friends, Nahum teaches us, is never insensitive to the sufferings of his people. Although we might think that he had forgotten us. And can you imagine? Surely they had felt that forgottenness in those long years of Assyria's might. It doesn't look like God will keep his promises. It doesn't look like God will do what he said that he would do. It doesn't look like God loves us or that our God works. Look at their God. Big city, big town, lots of commerce, wealth, trade, people, buildings, the nations of the world. Where is the God of the Bible? Nahum teaches us that at the right time, God will act to deliver his people. It might not be when they think that it should happen. It might not be when they want it to happen. But at the right time, in the fullness of time, God will send forth his deliverer. And on that day, Judah, God's people, will celebrate over God's enemies when he bursts their bonds of torment apart. On that day, there will be relief and rest. There will be judgment and joy. On that day, God will, verse 14, dig the grave of their enemies and place them in it as he buries their vile filth forever. Only true faith and the sovereignty of the God of redemption could generate belief in this message concerning Nineveh's fall under such circumstances. And only true faith in the sovereignty of the God of redemption will believe it today under the circumstances that we live in. At a time when others look strong and God looks weak, when others are near and God seems far off, 
When the promises of his coming seem unbelievable and everything that the world has to offer is right here at our fingertips, it will be hard to believe the promises of the Bible. Well, friends, that is precisely what we're called to do, just like the people in Nahum's day, to believe that the day is coming when God will undo all the evil and he will make all wrong things right. And all we have to do is wait. The very thing that you don't want to do. You don't like waiting anywhere. You don't like waiting for the sermon to end or in line at the giant. You don't like waiting in the car line to drop the kid off or to pick up a grandkid from the pool. You don't like waiting on your friends to call you back or to return your text message. You don't like waiting when you send an email to a colleague or a coworker and they don't respond immediately. You don't like waiting overnight. We don't like waiting. But the Bible calls us to simply wait and to see the redemption that God brings to his people. To believe that a day is coming sooner than we might think when God will undo all that seems strong. He will level it to the ground. He will make it ash that will just blow away. And on that day, all the promises that seem so far off will be realized for God's people. And we will, on that day, publish good news. Verse 15. Behold, upon the mountains, the hillbillies will finally say, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, keep your feasts. Don't not keep them while you wait, O Judah. Fulfill your vows. You've made promises. Keep those too, even though it seems like it's far off. For never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly, entirely, completely cut off. What is the good news that is preached here? We see this in Isaiah 52, 7. We read about it in Romans chapter 10, verse 15. But the good news in Nahum is the destruction of the wicked. Good news! Your destroyers have been destroyed. Good news! Those who afflicted you are now afflicted and they are toast. Good news! God's redemption has come and you will see it when he overthrows your enemies. Good news on that terrible day. A day that will be felt by many to be awful. Friends, when we pray for the end of the world, we're praying for the destruction of those who stand against God. It will be a great and terrible day. A day of rejoicing and darkness. A day of feasting and celebration. And crying and slaughter. Good news for God's people. The good news of God's judgment of evil comforts God's people in a world that's filled with their enemies. It comforts them as it did in Nahum's day because it lets them know evil does not have the last word. Abuse does not have the last word. Wickedness does not have the last word. Oppression does not have the last word. Sin does not have the last word. Evil people will not have the last word. God will judge them. And that is good news to comfort God's people so that they might continue to be faithful to God when all of those promises seem far away. It's good news for them and it's good news for us. And it's meant to motivate us to persist in believing in that good news. They will not get away with it. I would like everybody to just look at me for a moment and stop taking notes. 
Some of you have been sinned greatly against. Good news. That sin will be dealt with. Some of you have sinned greatly against other people. It will be terrible news for you if you do not repent of that sin. Good news for all here who mourn inwardly. Bad news for all here who think they're getting away with it. But the promise of his coming gives us opportunity even now to believe in the promises of the gospel and the good news that can be ours, that can be yours in Christ. Sufferer, believe in those promises afresh today. Those afflicting others, hear me. God will judge your sin. He will not play with it as you have. Turn from it and flee so that you do not experience this wrath. They will not. You will not. I will not get away with it because the judge has rendered a verdict on the accused and we all stand guilty before him. But in Christ, there is mercy. A few applications before we close. Number one, Nahum had to be a very bold prophet to deliver this message when his enemies were at the height of their powers. And you too will have to be a very bold Christian to tell the truth about the God who is good and jealous if you're going to preach the gospel faithfully. Nahum had to be bold to stand against people when they seem strong. And you too will have to be bold to stand against uh, people who are in the height of their power. But Nahum calls us to share faithfully what God has given to us, even the terrible message of judgment. Second, the timing of God's institution of justice will always remain to us a mystery this side of eternity. But the message is clear. Eventually, he shall bring every work into judgment, whether it is good or evil. This is a message that we need today. God will bring everything into judgment, whether good or evil. You will give an account for every careless word, Jesus says. How many regard themselves as favored of the Lord, as exempt from his judgment because it's delayed? But Nahum teaches us that the long-suffering God, far from leading to repentance, leads, uh, leads us to presumption. And unrepentant sinners, he tells us, beware. Beware of unrepentance. We need to call people to not presume upon his kindness, to not presume upon his kindness and patience, to beware of his judgment. Third, judgment in Nahum is retributive. And that teaches us that God's judgment is not always restorative. We want people to be restored. Our church prays for people that we have disciplined and put under the discipline of our church to be restored. But Nahum also teaches us that God's justice is retributive. No message could be more offensive in our day. God's justice is retributive. He will mete out justice on those who have done evil, and it will not restore them to salvation. It will hurl them into darkness. Fourth, the salvation of God's people is closely linked to Nahum with the destruction of God's enemies. Friends, one of the ways that we comfort ourselves by rightly reading the Scripture is realizing that God has tied our salvation so closely to the judgment of those who stand in opposition to the gospel that we believe and preach. And we know that they will not get away with it. 
Few people know George Whitfield's name today. But during his six tours of the American colonies from 1739 till his death in 1770, he was certainly the most famous man in the colonies. And during that time, he came to Philadelphia nearly every year to preach, drawing huge crowds of people to the preaching house that was built for him that became home later to an academy that was organized by Ben Franklin in 1779 and then eventually became the University of Pennsylvania, which is why to this day on the University of Pennsylvania's campus about 30 blocks away from that, where that meeting house stood, you will find a statue of the evangelist George Whitfield. And it all began in a little preaching house, the very preaching house that 50 years after Whitfield's arrival hosted the first society of Unitarian Christians and became the first church in America to adopt the Unitarian name on June 12, 1796, with the help of Joseph Priestley. The town that had flocked to Whitfield forgot the gospel that he preached in the very place that he preached it, and then later preached a false gospel. Like Nineveh, Philadelphia learned, we are always one generation away from losing the gospel. Assuming the gospel means we will lose the gospel. And just like today, as they did in Nineveh's day, many people thought it would never happen. Jonah came, mass revival. Can there be anything else but blessing? But the fruits of that repentance are long gone. Brothers and sisters, the blessings that we're seeing in the life of our church will not be maintained by lackadaisical Christianity. The blessings that we see in our church, and we long to stay in this church until the Lord comes beyond our lifetime, will only be maintained by faithfully pursuing the Lord in every generation and not relying on past preaching of the gospel to maintain us in our present state of Christianity. Faithfulness then, faithfulness now, faithfulness until he comes. Will you be faithful? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to believe what we have read and studied today. And Father, that the overwhelming vision of the prophet Nahum, the burden that he bore, would be of comfort to us, but it will appropriately awaken us to the sinfulness of sin, the beauty of coming judgment upon your enemies, the wonder of your mercy that we would be forgiven rather than stand in that judgment, the astonishing nature of promises that were made and will most certainly be kept. We ask, God, that you would allow this prophecy to motivate us to be faithful evangelists and to faithfully persist in the faith that we have professed to believe. And we ask all of this in the name of the one true and living God of the Bible who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Would you stand and continue in worship with us?